through nostalgia we jump on each other yeah. that's it's sort of how we relate to each yeah. other that yeah. we have these yeah. in a way the emotion i feel that the ro the royals is a, a sort of love thing a familial love mm -hmm. thing for my mm -hmm. dad whereas the joy that i felt um at the u2 concert was sort of about the relationship with my sister Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today's episode is a bonus sequel of sorts to the essay episode about nostalgia that I debuted in tandem with my birthday last fall. That episode probably generated the most listener emails of any Deviate episode I've ever done, and this compelled me to go back and interview Kiki some more about the topic of nostalgia. And by the time this episode drops, I will have just gotten married to Kiki, a.k.a. the actress Kristen Bush. And in fact, you can consider this episode to be my own wedding gift to everyone who's been listening in the time since Kiki and I first met under those weird pandemic circumstances. This particular conversation happened about two weeks before we got engaged last fall, back when we were still in the thick of the COVID pandemic. We covered a lot of topics we couldn't get to in the first Nostalgia episode, including the ways objects become imbued with meaning and the way we use journals to navigate memory and nostalgia. I talk about how my 2019 travel journals recall a dream I had of my own death when I was in Asia, a dream that almost but thankfully never came true. Kiki and I talk about a phenomenon known as the Nostalgia Bump, which contrary to some stereotypes is something that happens to people when they're still young. We talk about nostalgia for music and how it differs from nostalgia for sports or movies and how these kinds of memories remind us of the people we're close to, people like parents or siblings. We talk about how nostalgia can be generation-specific and we start with Kiki's observation that coming home to your childhood bedroom forces a kind of nostalgia onto you. Let's listen in. Yeah, you were living in Germany for several years mm -hmm. and then you came back to kansas to your small town kansas to your own childhood yeah. bedroom so it's almost as if nostalgia was yeah. forced on you well as you know i've often come back um to the same childhood bedroom i just hadn't spent i mean i was there from april until i'm still kind of there now you know it's half a year of being in my parents home and we my mother and i went through our attic and went through you know got rid of car cars full of of things and a lot of those things were like old baby clothes or old toys or, you know, childhood blankets. So I was really confronting a lot of the detritus of growing up. Well, it's interesting that you talk about these objects that mm -hmm. spark nostalgia because you're basically moving in with me. You are moving in with me. <laughs> and to prepare for that, I've had to clear out my closets. Mm -hmm. I've had a house, sort of a bachelor house for 15 years mm -hmm. here. And to make room for you... I've had to empty closets of mm -hmm. things that I kept for some reason, but I wasn't sure why. And so I actually recorded myself giving away some of this stuff to my nephews. Mm -hmm. I, I love these shoes to death. I taught in these in Korea, and then I got them resold in Thailand. They're really, really ugly, but maybe that's cool. And I, I'm wearing these boots on the cover of Vagabonding. Um, they've been everywhere, and I don't wear them anymore. What was interesting is that I just wasn't giving them away, giving them shirts and different you know objects from my past every single thing had a story yeah the the thing with all this stuff is that there's like a story behind everything 
So part of this is sort of my way of saying goodbye to these clothes. Because that's been on the Travel Channel, that shirt I was wearing on American Pilgrim. Like, it was probably the least watched show in the history of the Travel Channel. Like, nobody watched that, and I was the host. What was the premise of American Pilgrim? It was a Thanksgiving show. And I went and interviewed people who were descended from the pilgrims who came on the... It's like every time I pass something over, it's like, well, yeah. this is what yeah. I wore in Colorado yeah, yeah, in 1989. Yeah. And I couldn't, it's like I couldn't even help it. Right. But I think that also, I think you and I are people for whom objects are imbued with a lot of meaning. I have encountered a lot of people in my life, as I'm sure you have too, who are just like, oh, that's just some shirt. Or, oh, that's just some thing. But the first time I walked into your home... You know, you've got a wall full of mementos that are, each one of them are very specifically chosen. I mean, in my childhood bedroom and every place I've lived in subsequently, I have had, I've carried around these little totems that for me kind of anchor me in a way that you've talked about in the, in the, um, in the piece to my, to who I am. And I think it's been so important. And I wonder if this is part of it for you too, that if you're able to have things on your walls, wherever that might be, especially as people who have traveled as much as you have and as much as I have, then it, it helps to keep a sense of self in a little way. Well, the fact that you're moving in with me now is going to revolutionize my relationship with objects. I mean, we've talked mm -hmm. about me. I have a closet mm -hmm. full of things that I've kept simply because I have a closet that fits them. Yeah. And Th that's the to... American way, though, truly, yeah. especially like out here in, in the Midwest where we have space. Yeah. I mean, you have a small house in air quotes, but even still, you've got so much more crazy space than you, than you would if you were in a big urban area. And yes, I think because of that, if you've got the space, you're gonna fill it. Why would you throw it away if you don't have to? Well, I think, and touching on what you are talking about earlier, that travel has made me hang on to the memories of objects, in part because I traveled for years before I had this house, mm -hmm. and so Sometimes coming home and opening a box and looking at things that I wore in when I was 18 or when I was 25 Helped give me a sense of continuity that I didn't have because I didn't have mm -hmm. a home mm -hmm. Have you had the experience? I've had this a few times in fact I've had to like write down sometimes what stones Like I save stones or shells or whatever not crazy But I've gone back at times to this apartment that I've got in Brooklyn where I've got like a stone or something like that and I'm like Why did I keep that? Why do I have this? Even my own things that were so, that held all this meaning for a while have kind of within my own lifetime, within a short period of years have become meaningless. Well, I have a shelf that has some stones on it. Just around the corner, you were commenting on yeah. the shelf, if not the stones the other yeah. day. And I have forgotten where I picked those up. Yeah. And in a way that's a blessing because it allows me to forget. Yeah. I think sometimes allowing yourself to forget is good too. Yeah. You know, like, oh, I got this one in the Falklands and I got right. this one in South right. Africa. Right. Well, in a way, those stones have a nostalgic resonance that's not specific. It's mm -hmm. just about the fact that right. I sometimes go to the ocean right. and pick up a stone. Right. It's a life. It's yeah. a life as opposed to a specific part of it, I suppose. One thing I want to touch on is this very personalized nostalgia that we're talking about in the context of going to the houses where mm -hmm. people have lived and, and then making sense of what you get rid of when you have to get rid of it. But there is some generalized cultural nostalgia. I touched on that a little bit in the episode, mm -hmm. but if you go to YouTube, and I go to YouTube far too much these days, there are actual um, videos that curate nostalgia for people of a certain generation, right? Right. Get ready to travel back in time. Here are 25 things 80s kids could do that today's kids can't. Six, 
sleep on a waterbed. At one time, waterbeds were insanely popular. Today, of course, pretty much no one has them. If you aren't even sure what they are, it's pretty self-explanatory. They're a mattress filled with water. There are these videos that are not made for a specific person, um, but it's meant to trigger nostalgia for people of a certain generation. And I think what's unique about people of our generation, which is Generation X, I guess, mm -hmm. um, is that this nostalgia loop, loop is accelerated. We're the, maybe the first generation to be able to go on YouTube and immediately relive, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. if we think, huh, I love the TV show Emergency. Well, then you can go find the theme What's song from that? Emergency. I've never heard of that. It's about fireman. That oh was probably God. before my time. It was probably before you were born. Yeah. Because I was a very little kid uh, when I listened, when yeah. I loved that show. Yeah. Too, with our generation, and we are in the same generation, there were only half a dozen channels or whatever. There were a dozen channels, so there were, we were all watching the same thing. You can make a reference to your friends, and they're like, oh, yes, of course, that thing. And I can say to my friends, well, the Cosby Show or whatever, and or that Kicks commercial. And people know what that is, whereas now people don't watch TV. Kids don't watch TV. I mean, maybe they'll talk about Dora the Explorer, but there are probably 18,000 Dora the Explorers or whatever, you know? And, and they follow certain people on TikTok yeah. who other people of their age may not even know yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in 30 years, who knows what they're going to be nostalgic for. Another way of saying, in my very biased view, that, that it's the way we grew up was better. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing that, one interesting thing between you and me is Sports nostalgia. Now, you don't care about sports for the most part. You're a drama girl, but... Hang on. I care about two types of sports, basketball and baseball. And within those two headings, the Royals baseball and KU basketball. That's all. Okay. Two, two um, franchises with, with a fantastic history. But one thing that we have bonded over is... Uh, the Royals, specifically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We, we haven't really known each other during an active KU basketball season. Not but, yet. Um, actually, there's a very specific calls from the 2015 World Series, like hearing, you know, Joe Buck call the final pitches. The 1 2 again. voice of don't put me on the spot like this I knew you were gonna ask and then I'm gonna get um well he's the old guy Denny Matthews thank you Denny yeah I in fact when I think of his voice I'm in the back of my family's station wagon and we are coming back from Kansas City and I'm in, laid out in the back and there's nothing more it's like the womb I mean his voice is like the kind of voice of God takes the pitch for a strike George at 267 during the season. Four homers, 45 RBI. Royals need one to tie. They need two to win. Sitting there and feeling the sensation of the car driving back home and his voice kind of lulling in and out of my ears is something so comforting. So now to hear it, it still has that quality. And I, I mean, I've loved that we've been able to share that. I think of summer when I hear Dave oh, yeah. voice. Yeah. You know? yeah. And this is another thing that I think sports might be a thing that people have generational nostalgia for, yeah. even if they don't listen to the same TikTok personalities or whatever, right. YouTube shows. Um, sports is uniform in a way. Games happen on certain days mm -hmm. and, you, and you end up watching them. And we should probably touch on music a little bit, um, not just because there's a lot 
to unpack to use a word you don't like. I love the word unpack. Podcast. Podcast. Podcast word you don't like. Let's unpack that, dude. (laughs) I will totally unpack anything with you on a podcast. (laughs) Well, let's unpack music. In part because it touches on the YouTube, YouTube, um, which I listen to far more than I want to, but Uh YouTube's algorithm has figured out something that scratches my nostalgia itch. Mm -hmm. But a couple weeks ago, you and I were, you know, at your family cabin in Colorado mm-hmm. and we spent like three hours no, listening to old 80s music and ball. stuff. It was a ball and we were using Spotify, not YouTube, not that it matters, but it has a similar sort of algorithm. Well, here we were both, we are both Cure fans and so we went down a rabbit hole that then led us to Smashing Pumpkins and it was just, so, it was so delightful. We, you were showing me old videos of like, look at Robert Smith when he was young. Oh, he was so beautiful. And you know, like then we went, moved on to Joy Division and it was just this kind of meandering walk through our own respective youths in a way or you know, earlier times in our life. And even though we were at different ages, it was still, I think for both of us, such a, even if we, like you say in your, in your podcast episode on this, um, even if it wasn't necessarily a good time, uh, in in the past, it was it was so pleasurable to go back into those moments. Well, last night you were dancing in my kitchen, in our kitchen, to the Smiths. Yeah, right. To songs that very, I reacted very to beautifully. very beautifully. I want to <laughs> want to point out that it was almost it Patreon was, subscribers uh, can get footage <laughs> of Kiki dancing it, in my kitchen. It was professional, Slightly professional grade. Thank you. Uh, no, I think. The Cure's Disintegration album in particular, to get into the weeds of this nostalgia, I remember in the summer of 91, I was working uh, the midnight shift for the supermarket Dillon's, which you know, because you're a Kansas person like me. And I would come back and on my days off, I would sit in my living room and I would listen to (laughs) The Cure's Disintegration. I listen to that and it's funny because I feel 20 years old again. Mm-hmm. But while I was listening to it at that time, I was dreaming about the future. Yeah, you know, yeah. I was dreaming about what I would do in life, you yeah. know, what, what was going to happen next. And there's so much longing in yeah. your songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's the word that comes to mind for me too. I mean, so many of those songs I discovered later, not currently because I was little, but I remember a lot of a lot of music would be listened to on my slightly shaggy uh, lime green carpet in my room that's no longer there. And I would just think about what was beyond my one stoplight little town. Yeah, no, well, I I actually dreamed up my very first vagabonding trip that summer. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I started corresponding with my friend Jeff who who went with me on that first vagabonding trip. It's another episode of the Mm -hmm. podcast. The Cure was pretty new for me at the time. I was sort of a mullet rocker. Mm-hmm. You know, ACDC reminded me of earlier times. Cure was very new for me mm-hmm. at the time, and so it made me dream of the future. It also, I mean, there's lines like from, um, is it just like heaven? Um, I'll run away with you. Promise me that I'll run away with you. I mean, just even the idea that there is, the idea of running away, but with someone yeah. that you love. Yeah, uh, and there's, there's such romantic songs, and so when you're, yeah. when, you, when you don't have that in your life, and of course, you know, thinking about that is... Is pretty potent. When I was still post-concussion, I was a little bit depressed. I came back to Kansas. I took my nephew Luke to the shopping mall where I used to take him 10 years earlier. 
But we were playing putt-putt golf in this place where we both had nostalgia for as a place where we had gone, where I'd taken him as a little kid and he was super excited. Now he was 18 and sort of... Yeah, was this, he on his phone a lot? No. Right. Um, and he enjoyed it, but of course he wasn't as excited as he was when he was eight. Right. But he, but he's here like, yeah, no, I enjoyed this place back in the day. But we were listening to this song um, by Eddie Money called <laughs> I Want to Go Back. And How does that go again? It, it, I want to go back, go back and do it right. all over, but I can't go back, I know. No. I'm going to save that for Patreon subscribers, too. There are no Patreon subscribers. That hit me at several levels because here I was experiencing nostalgia for a place that I went to with my nephew, with my nephew, but in a way that I'm sure that was different than the nostalgia that he was feeling right. as a teenager. And I think there's a sort of a tenderness that when you see young people age, you know, mm. that you, you know, it's about them aging, but it's also about you aging. But then this song is about Eddie Money in his mid to late 30s talking about wanting to go back and do it all over. Well, he's covering a Billy Satellite song, which was Billy Satellite's musicians were in their mid-20s when they wrote this song, mm. about how they want to go back and do it all over, but they can't go back, you know? And so, literally, here's a song by young people longing for a previous time, mm. while I was with my young nephew longing for a previous time, mm -hmm. and maybe he was longing in his own way, but then I was sort of in this post-concussive depressive state, and so... It was this weird moment, and I've talked to you about it before, about how, um, and actually there's a lyric from the, from the song that says, I heard a song on the radio that reminded me of a long time ago. Well, the Eddie Money song came out in 86, when yeah. I was a little bit yeah, younger than yeah, Luke. Yeah, yeah, And so it was like, oh, it's it so meta here. six <laughs> levels of nostalgia. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, have you ever, have you ever had, is music a Oh, similar? totally. Yes, yeah. absolutely. It's like a, a wormhole back into certain times no I mean I've told you this and <laughs> I remember being if you don't know me by now song if you don't know oh, it's me so bad if you don't know me That'll take me right the way back to being in Wichita, Kansas, and yet another back. I was in the back seat of some car, and I remember there was like a tornado warning, and the sky was gray. Every time I hear it, it's kind of this sinking feeling of something unpleasant that's about to happen, but I still kind of miss that time in a way, or I miss being that age, even though you couldn't pay me money to be nine years old, at least, you know, not for long periods of time. I'd love to go back in like a kind of Emily in our time, out our town sort of way and like have a little view into it just without the death part in our town Emily that's a that's a true actor reference that totally, Emily in, yep. in the in the Thornton Wilder play mm -hmm. our town but also that was also the most Kansas nostalgia moment ever a tornado warning yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Aaron Neville for a tornado mm -hmm. warning but I think that is also I think sometimes songs can span one's youth because as you know I took my sister to see a U2 concert in 2017 which was 
literally a nostalgia project that they were in, on tour right. playing songs from the Joshua Tree, which came out in 1987, mm. 30 years earlier. And one reason why I took my sister is that I'd given her that cassette tape. Again, this old technology. Mm-hmm. I've always been pretty close to my sister, but I felt like one of my duties to her is to show her music that was cool. Not, not the other way around? She not, was older. Yeah, but I was more into music than she was. Right, okay. Um, and there were certain things. I, she taught me to drive. You know, there's a lot of she did. energy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Crazy. She taught me to read, actually. Um, and so she had a more parental... I was the younger brother, so I sort of had more cool stuff. And I'm sure she'd heard of U2 before, but this, when this album came out, I knew she'd like it. And so we went to that concert together, and it was super special. But then U2 has its tendrils into me in several ways. Like when U2 played bad during Live Aid, when when Bono was at peak mullet, it was such an amazing song and such an amazing memory. I remember watching on TV and feeling a specific way. being in Colorado where the cool Christian kids at Christian camp, um, they knew about U2 because yes, U2 was yes. a little bit Christian, I right? Know, I know. And then I have other U2 memories that are about Octung Baby when I was in college and very specific friends from college. And so it's so interesting that that one concert I went to with my sister where we showed up five hours early so we could be right on the front row. Yeah. It was about my relationship with my sister, just like the Royals, to a certain extent, is about my relationship to with my dad. dad mine just too. Yours yeah. is as well. Um, and, and to s- my mom now, how it's it's evolved as well, which is interesting because she's now into it anyway. Well, I think through nostalgia, we jump on each other. Yeah. That's, it's sort of how we relate to each yeah. other. That yeah. we have these, yeah. in a way, the emotion I feel at the, ro- the Royals is a, a sort of love thing, a familial love mm-hmm. thing for my mm-hmm. dad. Whereas the joy that I felt... Um, at the U2 concert was sort of about the relationship with my sister. And I had a friend um, who was sitting like way up in the stand someplace. and Because he, he got there at three hours early right? instead of five. Well, yeah. Um, well, he didn't have the expensive tickets, but he's here, here. that was pretty good. You know, he goes right. to a lot of New York concerts. But for me, it wasn't just about the right. music. Right. It was about experiencing 10 right. different times in my own life while listening to U2 but music I think in that's, New York. I think that's how bands like that especially and like the stones and bands that have been together for so long that's how they keep themselves in huge stadiums people go to be reconnected to themselves during that time surely you know and then they get new fans and all of that but it's i think it must be a lot about like reliving those songs and putting people in their youthful states have you heard of the nostalgia bump Mm-mm. i'm not sure no you didn't talk to. about this in the well, no, it's part of my notes for the nostalgia episode. Huh. We tend to remember our memories uh, from our youth mm-hmm. more so than when we're a little bit older. There's a lot of date ranges, but it's sort of age 12 to age 30. Mm-hmm. Sort of when you're coming into your own as a person, you're more likely to be nostalgic for experiences from that 12 to 30 range of your life than right. you are for other parts of your life. Right. And I feel like that's true for me. You think of nostalgia as sort of an aging person's thing, mm-hmm. but they say that one of the most intense times for nostalgia is like right after high school, young yeah. adulthood, when you're sort of, you don't know really who you are yet right. and you're longing for the stability of your right. more recent youth. Right. I don't relate to that as much. So from 12 to 30, they say that's when Those are the memories we're, we're nostalgic for, for the, the most. For the most. That's interesting. 
12, so that's like sixth grade. I don't know. I don't know if that reverberates with me or not. I think I, I'm, I'm being nitpicky with the 12 to 30. I mean, for me, before I was 12, there are so many periods of time when I'm like, oh, that was a replay in my head. But I also, I think that I had a very happy childhood, so I think I think about that as well. Right. Going back to the, the more traditional dictionary definition, mm-hmm. nostalgia mm-hmm. being a pleasant time in your life. Mm. Um, one aside here is that when you and I first knew each other and we're sort of first falling for each other, we would send these little audio messages um, to each other through iMessage or whatever. And you teased me that I sounded, that I used my podcast voice. Sometimes, yes. And then, and this so is then, Rolf Potts here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you for, thanks for clarifying. <laughs> and then, and then we had an inside joke that lasted a couple of weeks where I would send you the Rolf is Dead podcast. <laughs> Welcome to the Rolf Potts is Dead podcast. I'm your host, Rolf Potts. I'm dead. I realize you're probably a little bit happy that I finally died because, well, just because of the slow accumulation of really bad jokes. Um, and I'm sorry for my podcast voice. I mean, I've had a lot of practice by now, but after all these years, I still have like the second best podcast voice in this relationship. Like, well, Rolf is dead, but he left me this podcast style message back in the year 2020. To comfort me in my alone time, yeah. I think you need to revitalize that. <laughs> well, on the topic of death. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> let's go there. Well, Death comes into my meditations on the other episode because of my motorcycle crash, mm-hmm. which is something you knew about very early in our relationship. <laughs> Even before I met you. I yeah, think. yeah. But I, it felt like something I should share with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing I was going to share in that podcast but didn't that's interesting is that the journal I kept of that trip, I had premonitions of my own death. And I actually wrote in my journal a message to the people who found my body. God. It's so weird. But this is what I wrote in my journal after I had this dream. There's sort of a catch here, but this is what I wrote. I have this weird vision of the share taxi getting buried by a mudslide on the road to Bukitini in two days' time. So I, my crash was in Sri Lanka, but this mm-hmm. premonition was in Sumatra. Mm-hmm. Weirdly unsettling and almost real feeling. I and this, this, sorry, and this was a, a dream. This is a dream. For you, which... yeah. So I dreamed of my own death while i was worried about mudslides in sumatra this was a good month before i crashed my motorcycle in sri lanka but it said um i get this weird anxiety about what it would be feel like to be buried alive i want to send a message to someone telling them that if something happens to me on the road i don't regret traveling the world and nobody else should fear it even after this weird vision of what happened to me Hmm. that's just weird it was weird to to discover that later, I'd forgotten that I'd had the dream, I'd forgotten that I'd journaled about it, mm-hmm. and then on a different island on the same trip, I did have mm-hmm. a really scary experience. Mm-hmm. And there I was telling whoever would listen, whoever would open my computer journal that I don't regret this, I'm right. glad I lived this right. way. Right. One sad thing about that is that probably nobody would actually read that. <laughs> Whatever I wrote in my journal, they well, I don't know how it. they would access it, for they, starters. They couldn't you know? access it. Um, especially when they dug it out of the mud, apparently, that I was afraid of. <laughs> but I thought about this in my journal before, that I'll go back and I'll read my own journal from like 1996 or 1992 or, or something like that, and it will really evoke my mindset then. And then I'll think, 
this is meaningful to nobody else. I've, so, I think that I think about that with mine. I keep mine in. God, I've got so many now. I mean, it's almost it's almost embarrassing. I've just got a mound of them next to my childhood bed, and then some down on my bookshelf. And I think so. They're all handwritten. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but that's that's my jam. Um, I, who who on earth is gonna give a care about these things? I mean, I read them sometimes, and I alternately kind of get embarrassed or feel empathy for the person that I was. I, I think I think it's for you in the moment, really. It's interesting how journals can be sort of a mark of time, but this, sometimes in your journals you meditate on time. And so mm -hmm. I'm going to read an entry, um, and maybe this is the only way it will ever get out of my journal on this weird day in 1995. An excerpt from June 4th, 1995, when I was flying out to Seattle to visit some friends. And you were how old then? 24. Okay. I said, I sat by a couple of funny little Mormon girls who seemed concerned that I might be shy. Oh. They had a lap full of stuffed animals, all of which were named Brownie. No! <laughs> they kept sticking peanuts up their noses and laughing. And they asked me, how do angels get around? Oh. And what does the Heavenly Father look like? I told them that it doesn't matter what the Heavenly Father looks like. And they seemed satisfied with that answer. As we began our descent into Seattle, the man behind me started talking to his grandkids about flying airplanes in World War II huh. and about what the anti-aircraft fire looked like as it floated up to him above Europe. He talked self-consciously as if he were lying, though he clearly wasn't, as if he was startled by the irrelevance of a moment that happened such a long time ago, as if as strong as memory can be, the present moment is always stronger, as if youth in this present moment, in any present moment, is the only youth there ever is. I wonder what my aircraft fire will be when I'm old. We dream of mm. the places when you're young, and then we get older, and we dream about other times. If that were if that were represented in film, you would have you couldn't make that stuff up. You know, you're talking about the heavens and and well, and all were, sorts of stuff when you're in the clouds. I mean, that's gorgeous. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. I didn't, maybe they were thinking about the heavens because they were young and they hadn't flown mm -hmm. very much, and they were Mormons and they mm -hmm. were thinking about the heavenly Father. But now those Girls probably have mm -hmm. kids of their own. Um, the World War II veteran mm, father has probably, probably gone. died. Yeah. yeah, and I'm thinking that my anti-aircraft flack is probably moments like that. Is these little yeah. moments that happened a long time yeah. ago yeah. that I identified as significant. I think what's scary for me is to think that something so beautiful as that can happen, and then you for, and then one might forget it. Thank, thank God you wrote it down so that you can be reminded of that. But we've talked about this kind of within, within the context of like, how do you, how can we capture this moment? Like the other night we were on a run and the, neither one of us had our phone and, and the sun was so beautiful or the, the moon was coming up in a way that was just like, how do you hold on to this moment, you know, for perpetuity? Well, the answer is you can't, you have to internalize it somehow. So I think that moments like that with the girls and the grandfather and the moon and the whatever, I mean, it is what, this sounds really wanky, but it, this is what makes us up. This is the stuff that we're made of, but it would be lovely if you could just hold on to them and be able to look at them or to embody them, you know. Well, it occurs to me that I may have missed that moment too. I may have been reading a book, and mm -hmm. I probably have hundreds of times yeah, yeah. not talked to the Mormon yeah. girls. I have not overheard the grandfather yeah. say that observation. Well, nobody so. talks to each other on planes anymore anyway, or anywhere. You know how I feel about this stuff, and I'm I'm certainly to blame for being, I walk around cities with my 
music playing all the time. And I think I admonish myself sometimes when I'm doing it because I think, you know, get out of your own, your own little bubble and be, even if you're not going to, you know, talk to everybody on the street, like be more present. But these devices of ours have really, they've allowed us to kind of shut people out in a way that we couldn't before, which I don't think will behoove us as a, as a people. Well, I wonder if that's going to re, if that's going to rejigger the DNA of nostalgia, if the way, when we are so immersed in the black mirror, in the device, what do we become nostalgic for? Oh, is for? that what that means? The black mirror? Yeah. Ah, I've, not, I've not seen that. I've not seen the yeah. show. Oh, that's great. We talked about in, yeah, in the other know. episode about how nostalgia, when it was diagnosed as a medical condition, was more about homesickness. Mm-hmm. And then as modernity crept in and people were more living in cities, it was changed a lot of time anyway, yeah. then nostalgia was less about a place than about a time. And now we're in a post-postmodern time where not only are we more likely to live in cities that are constantly changing, we're not as likely to engage in a direct experience right. of where we live. Right. Well, I think that you and I can easily be nostalgic for the times that we were, you know, whatever your version was of being out until it started to get dark and there was no way that my mom could get in touch with me. And so I'm nostalgic for the time before cell phones and before being instantly available to everyone. I mean, I just did a thing in a voiceover with some Germans today. I mean, it's great what it's opened up with certain things, but it has made us, I don't know, this is my soapbox, but I feel like it was just, and this is not like a make America great sort of thing, but I think that there was a real, there was a simpler time where we were ironically more truly connected to one another. I'm so grateful for a time that I was, I could, I was an adult before you know, these things were indispensable. And I'm grateful that I knew what it was like to at least exist in the world without one. I mean, I was in London before I had my first cell phone. And even then, it wasn't a smartphone. So, you know, I had to read a map. (laughs) Well, there's other things that they say have shifted since smartphones, including the way that social media and its algorithms have changed what we perceive as news and what we mm-hmm. perceive as truth, mm-hmm. it's sort of scary. Mm-hmm. But I think that also that's part of the nostalgia matrix is mm-hmm. that I'll sit down for YouTube, I'll play a Pixie song right. I liked, talked about this before on the podcast, three hours later, my attention is still 100%. Right. I'm listening to a, like a Kaya song that I didn't listen to in the 90s, but I love and reminds me of the 90s, even though it wasn't a part of that. I'll listen to a New Order song that I didn't listen to in the 80s, but reminds me of the 80s. Right. I complain about social media algorithms, but in a way... I'm sort of fond of the YouTube algorithm because Mm -hmm. it takes me places that it surprises me. Mm -hmm. Um, No, I I love that. And you couldn't do that, you know, pre-internet. That's, those are, I think those are really positive and pleasurable, you know, ways of using the kind of algorithm. This is like YouTube, for whatever reason, thinks I'm a Cleveland Browns fan, which is ridiculous. (laughs) So, like, if you, if you look at my my page now, there's it suggests, like, five different Cleveland Brown videos. There have so been bizarre. times where it has assumed that, like, I was sort of a alt-right conservative. And, and, and they've talked about this before, that YouTube will take you down more and more extreme rabbit holes. And so it's just, like, because I listened to whatever podcast right. that is maybe adjacent to right. the alt-right, right. then suddenly it thought that's what it was. And it's like, here's some stuff that right. will make you infuriated. And it's just right. like, yeah, no right. thanks. Right. And no thanks. I'm sorry, Cleveland Browns fans, but that's not my team. Right. And so um, it's interesting how YouTube can really hit a sweet spot. Mm-hmm. I can YouTube can hit the bullseye for three hours 
in music, for example, but in politics, it doesn't have, it has no idea who I am. And in sports, it's maybe 85% right. So what, what have we missed? Is there any other things that we've been talking about or things that... Well, I think there's something, I think the notion of being in something right now that is so positive for both of us, not obviously not the pandemic, but I'm speaking purely personally here that we've both really enjoyed getting to know one another and getting to know each other's world worlds it's going to be we've talked about this it's going to be interesting to see what it will be what we will long for you know when we're old and gray and i don't think i don't think one can know i have a hunch that it might not be the things that we think of just like i mean i don't i'm thinking of smells right now in particular we went into your parents um, like tornado shelter yesterday or the day before and it the smell of it was mildew and i mean you think mildew gross for me, mildew is, I love that smell, as I told you. It was in, I was instantaneously transported back to my grandparents' basement where it was labyrinthine and, you know, all of these secrets were down there. It's where the laundry chute was and it's where Gama kept her, her, you know, desserts that she didn't want us eating in the freezer downstairs. I mean, it was just such a part of my happy childhood that you know, you would just open the door and I was right back there. So I'm sure that there will be certain things about this time that I won't even, that I can't prepare for or that I can't even really conjure right now. And I, I like that. Well, I think too, well, probably one thing we'll long for is simplicity. Yeah, which I know, I know. Is frustrating. Like you're an actor. And yeah. so this morning you recorded some voiceover. Yesterday mm -hmm. you auditioned for a part in NCIS New Orleans. <laughs> yeah. God. In my spare room, it was the cutest thing I ever saw that basically you're auditioning for a CBS show in, in this room full of my like sports memorabilia. It's, but it's all smoke and mirrors. And so it's frustrating. Like I, as a writer, have frustrations too, professionally. Mm -hmm. But yesterday was kind of beautiful. No, it was gorgeous. We were able to kind of do our work from this place that, you know, is surrounded by grass and cows and a donkey and your parents and the sky and the pressures of, I don't know, like hurry up, get to the appointment or, you know, we've got this, not that I don't, I love seeing my friends, but, you know, we've got a dinner party that we've got to go to and make sure that you do that thing at this place. I mean, I think that we'll really... I'm looking forward to entering the world with you and for, you know, you getting to know certain people in my life. But I think you're right. I think that the notion of like the big thing on our, on our list yesterday was like eating nachos outside. <laughs> it's enforced simplicity. Like we yeah. don't really have a lot of options. Right. You did your, you, you did your best shake yesterday professionally. Right. Right. I, right. I did all I could. You've yeah. continued to do all you can for the past several months, but there will, you know, the time will come when we have to leave. Someday you'll do an in-person audition. Yeah. Someday I'll be off on assignment yeah. for some well-paying writing gig mm -hmm. and we'll miss, yeah. we'll miss our pandemic time when, although we felt frustrated professionally, we were yeah. able to enjoy the Kansas weather and each mm -hmm. other in a way that was pretty special. And this is, I mean, not to beat a dead horse, but this is also not to say that we aren't aware of, I'll speak for us both, in this regard that you know obviously it's economically and emotionally and physically awful for so many you know hundreds of thousands of people and we don't know how where it's going to end up but you know we're not immune to any of this it could be this could be really scary but um and it is really scary for a lot of people and a lot of people are no longer with us but but that said it's a it's a weird time to to be grateful for and we i i'm sure we will feel 
heaps of nostalgia for it. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. Please don't forget to spread the word about Deviate by leaving a friendly rating or review at your favorite podcasting service. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.